From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, hear now God's word. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. This has been another alarming week for our nation with the police shootings in Dallas. Sadly, the story of humanity is full of such tragedies. And yet the world presses forward in darkness. Last Sunday, we looked at this passage from Ephesians chapter 2 and considered our condition before God and the devastating effects of sin. Both original sin, that is the sin that is part of who we are, our nature, the nature we inherited from our father Adam, our inclination to sin, that's who we are, that's what we are, but also our actual particular sins, the manifestations of that nature. The diagnosis was death. We, are complete, we were completely cut off from God and the covenant with Him, which is life. Separated from Him. We were in a hopeless condition, or at least it appeared that way. Now there was one other aspect to our condition that is mentioned in this text that we did not cover last week that I do want to cover today. Paul says in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Dr. Lloyd-Jones comments on this point, saying this, We now come to look at the Apostles' final statement about man and sin. And that is that he is under the wrath of God. In other words, Paul deals with sin as sin affects man's standing before God. He shows what God says and thinks and does about man in that condition, which we've already considered. There can be no question at all but that this is the most important aspect of this subject. The others were were vitally important, but there is nothing which is more important, which is as important as this. It is because we so constantly forget this, that the world is as it is today, and indeed that the church is as she is. We are so self-centered and concerned about ourselves that we fail to remember that the most important thing above all else is the way in which God looks down upon it all. That is the subject with which we now have to deal. Wrath is not something we hear very much about today. I suspect it's another one of those words that is simply politically incorrect to use, 
but it is a word that the Bible frequently uses. In fact, it uses it nearly 200 times. It uses it more than the word salvation is used in the Bible. Two facts emerge. First, wrath is an expression of one of the attributes of God. That is, His attribute of justice. Second, sinners are under that wrath. We are under His judgment. If these are indeed facts, then there is no more important issue that that confronts us than this. Let me say that again. If... In fact, we are under His wrath, then there is no more important fact or issue that confronts us than this. All the other mess that is in us and around us is the result of sin. This is what's wrong with the world, but the world does not want to hear it. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. You see, it is our relationship to God, your relationship to God, that is the most critical thing. The other problems are collateral and temporary, but this one is primary and eternal. The other problems flow from this basic problem. We are not only cut off from God, that is, dead to God, separated from God, we are, as a result the just objects of His righteous wrath. One dictionary defines the word wrath as vengeance or punishment as the consequence of anger. In other words, in our nature as sinners, God is angry with us. And if we remain in that condition, He will necessarily execute His vengeance against us and punish us for our sins. He is a just God. And wrath is an expression of that justice. Hell is the ultimate expression of His just wrath upon sinners. How could you look at this world and not believe in hell? How can you believe that there is no ultimate justice? Modern atheist authors like Richard Dawkins have told us that the God of the Bible is an angry, moral monster. But the Bible tells us that God's wrath stands in direct relation to man's sin. What did you feel about the injustices you heard about this week? Was there something in you crying out for justice, for it to be right, or to say that was wrong? Did you feel pity and sympathy for the innocent, for the victims? You see, in a universe without God, without justice, in fact, without the wrath of God, which is the just judgment upon that wickedness, then none of that meant anything. Here's what the Bible says, Romans 2, 4 through 5, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart, 
You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is kind to you. And He's doing all of that to lead you to repentance. But if you don't repent, the Bible says you will face His just wrath and judgment. God's justice could be executed immediately. But instead, He patiently waits. He's giving you and others time to repent. But He is not giving infinite time. Peter writes... And he says this, that we should be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, the New Testament, so the Bible, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is being very patient. This is not impulsive wrath, but it is an abiding wrath. It is a waiting wrath. It is a certain wrath that is a part of His justice. J.I. Packer summarizes it this way, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, Morally ignoble, a morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is, it is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. In other words, God has promised to do something about the evil that is in the world. Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment... One way or the other, all things must be made right. And as a result, the only sane response to God's wrath is fear. As Hebrews 10.31 puts it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But instead, the Bible pronounces concerning all humanity that there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. That's the problem with me and you. That's the problem with the world. No fear of God. It's as though God doesn't exist. And every time you sin, that's what you're saying. I don't think God really exists. I don't think He sees me. I don't think He is paying attention to me. I can do this my way. Everyone should fear His wrath since every one of us has sinned. God is all-powerful and He can do whatever He wants to do, whenever He wants to do it. 
And he would be perfectly just to just leave us in that condition. In fact, he has promised that some will go away into everlasting punishment. But a world gone mad with sin will seek any answer but the right one. And I want to suggest that one of the things we need to start with here, obviously we're going to, on other occasions, and there's all kinds, we want to bring all the Bible to bear. We should show kindness and pity and forbearance and patience. But we should not be embarrassed about this. This is critical to the gospel. This is a critical truth that we need to not shy away from because we're not even ever going to get close to the answer if we don't understand the problem. This teaching on the wrath of God is consistent, is the consistent teaching of both the Old and the New Testaments. There is a false notion out there that somehow the God of the Old Testament was wrathful, but the God of the New Testament is loving. This idea is false at many levels. It has a wrong view of God, it has a wrong view of wrath, and it has a wrong view of love. One of God's attributes is that He is immutable, unchangeable. There are not two gods, one for the Old Testament, one for the New. For I am the Lord, He says, I do not change. Malachi 3.6 James says that with the Father that there is no variation, no shadow of turning, that in regard to Jesus Christ, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. For example, here's what the Bible says about this unchangeable God. Nahum 1-2 God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. Romans 1.18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now there is a flip side to this. Perhaps this will help us understand. God loves righteousness and He hates sin. God loves righteousness, and He hates sin. He tells us to do the same. Romans 12, 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Genuine love, genuine love must always include hatred of evil. God's love and God's wrath are perfectly consistent with each other. In other words, we cannot understand the love of God unless we see it in the context of the other doctrines of the Bible. His wrath and His love. His justice and His mercy. So the righteous wrath of God should never be confused with the sinful wrath of men. As John Stott puts it, God's wrath against sin does not mean that he is likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all, for there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God. He is 
nor is he ever irascible, malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor irrational. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable, because it is provoked by evil and by evil alone. A.W. Pink said, Now the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is His faithfulness, power, or mercy. It must be so. For there is no blemish, whatever, not the slightest defect in the character of God, yet there would be if wrath were absent from Him. Shallow theology gives us shallow views of God and leaves us with a false understanding of the problem and the solution. In order for us to begin to grasp why Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had to come into the world, why He had to die in order to save us, then we must first clearly see what the Bible says about the wrath of God. The justice and wrath of God made the cross necessary. Again, Dr. Jones, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, excuse me. This doctrine is essential from the standpoint of true evangelism. Why is it that people do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it that people are not Christians and not members of the Christian church? Why does the Lord Jesus Christ not come into their calculations at all? In the last analysis, there is only one answer to that question. They do not believe in Him because they have never seen any need of Him. And they have never seen any need of Him because they have never realized that they are sinners, and they have never realized that they are sinners because they have never realized the truth about the holiness of God and the justice and the righteousness of God. They have never known anything about God as the judge eternal and about the wrath of God against the sin of man. So you see, the doctrine is essential in evangelism. If we really believe in salvation and in our absolute need of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must start with this doctrine. There then are the reasons for considering it. The apostle supplies them. I am simply repeating them. Again, both the Old and New Testaments are full of teaching on this subject. We couldn't even begin to cover them all this morning or we had several weeks. Consider the words of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In Romans 1.18, Paul declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Later in Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, Paul says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes those who, quote, 
turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And in a rather odd image, and on the face of it almost contradictory, we read in the book of Revelation about the Lamb of God. Remember what John said about the Lamb of God? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So the idea that wrath and love are incompatible is foreign to Scripture. In fact, we cannot begin to comprehend the mercy and the compassion of God if we do not first comprehend His wrath against sin. Salvation is our rescue from that wrath. We are born in sin, and if we die in our sins, the just wrath of God awaits us. Why do we have a world that has gone mad? Because we have a world that has rebelled against God. If you want to understand what happened in Dallas over the last few days or a million other awful events, then you will have to get to the root of the problem. Man has a history of sin. And his future will be just like his past unless something changes. We don't need gun control. We need man control. But what about all of our education and our scientific advances? We hear promises of a bright future. Evolution is taking us somewhere, right? Well, that's true enough. But where is it taking us? If you believe what the Bible says about man and sin, then you can readily see through this fallacy. Somebody said, this is depressing. You know what? I really don't care if it's depressing. I want to know if it's true. If it's true, then Jesus said we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. So what is a dead man to do? Thankfully, the next two words give us hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. Two of the best words in the Bible. But God. In these two words, we have the whole gospel. God himself intervenes. Nothing from within ourselves. It all comes from the outside. In fact, it is much more than it might first appear. 
Not only does God move to solve our problem of being dead in trespasses and sins and our being governed by the devil and the principalities and the powers of the world and the lust of the flesh and the mind and our fallen sin nature, along with our being condemned under the wrath of God. But he also addresses all of the world's contemporary problems. You see, the biblical method is to start with the truth and then apply it to the situations. We can't begin to solve problems of man until we first know the truth about him. We don't start with the world news headlines and try to figure out how to fix it. That'll give us things like gun control legislation and a host of other useless solutions. The message of the gospel is that we can be delivered out of this present evil world. This is God's work on your behalf. Verse 1 of this chapter began with these words. And you he made alive. You he resurrected. This cuts to the chase. It is His grace. It is His ill-deserved favor toward you that is your only hope. Would you like to be delivered? Would you like to be rescued? Would you like to be saved? Well, here's the good news. And the Bible says it over and over and over and over. Sometimes people are like, why doesn't God do something about all this? He has. He sent His only begotten Son to rescue us. To save us. Grace to you, Galatians 1, 3-5, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. That He might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. John 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have Everlasting life, for God so loved the world in all of its rottenness, in all of its sin, in all of its mess, in all of its problems, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. There's the answer. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on Him. Why? Because God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. God didn't just look the other way. God's 
character, God's being, God's justice demands that His wrath be satisfied. And it was in Christ. Here we have the ultimate good news. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Because of Christ, God can rightly call sinners justified. God has done what we cannot do and could not do, and He has done for us what we did not deserve. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. That's what we're saved from. This is not just good news. This is the best possible news. And we will have much more to say about this in the weeks to come. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we acknowledge that You alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace. Clearly, Christ demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. We say with the psalmist, the Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. Our God and our strength in whom we will trust. Our shield and the horn of our salvation. You are our stronghold. We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in your name we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, In gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day, declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Amen. 1 John 4, 7-11 Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is the love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he took away the wrath that was due to us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here Christ is called the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation because by His becoming our substitute and assuming our obligations, He expiated, that is, He took away our guilt. He covered it by the vicarious punishment which He endured. In other words, He at the cross 
received the wrath of God on our behalf. And we are therefore no longer under God's wrath. The debt has been canceled. It's been paid. Hebrews 2, 14-18 Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. We come to this table to partake of his flesh and blood, even as he partook of our flesh and blood. He became like us, that we might become like him. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous righteousness of God in him. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer and our Mediator without whom we have no standing with you. Indeed, we have been washed by his blood, and though our sins were as scarlet, we are now white as snow. For his sake alone, we can stand in your presence. We can know the assurance of your pardon and the pleasure of your countenance. O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking and increase our faith. And now we gladly go outside the camp to be with Christ, to bear his reproach, knowing that we will also bear his glory. You have given grace to the humble and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. As we desire that men should do unto us, let us do first unto them. Help us to be a disciplined people for your glory and our good. Unite our hearts to fear your name and your name alone, as you have instructed us. We now cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. Bless our feast. Bless our rest. Bless our rejoicing and fellowship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Amen.